today on CityCast Chicago. Chicago Public Schools enrollment has dropped by more than 100,000 students in the last 20 years. And in Chicago, fewer students means less money for a school. Now, while the median school will see an increase of about $80,000, the 2022-2023 budget proposal has 40% of schools losing an average of $220,000, mostly in black and brown neighborhoods. So we asked District CEO Pedro Martinez, how can this budget be what he's called CPS's most equitable ever? It's Monday, May 9th. I'm Jacoby Cochran, and this is CityCast Chicago. For at least the last decade, funding has been tied to enrollment in Chicago public schools. And when you have nearly 25,000 students leaving CPS, many from black and Latino communities, you're then ultimately penalizing these same communities by stripping schools of resources. It kind of seems like a catch-22. How do you account for that? Yeah, yeah. So, Jacoby, you know, this is a very, you know, complicated and challenging, you know, uh, significant challenge, by the way, not just in Chicago, but across the entire country. Budgets across the entire country are driven by enrollment. Uh, they've been driven by enrollment for, for decades since you and I were, were children ourselves in schools. Mm-hmm. And what we do in our district is we we first, first of all, staff a school, provide the resource based on the prior year's enrollment. So if you had 100 children last year, we staffed you for 100 children this year. Now, mm-hmm. you, that 100 children might have went down to 75. We didn't remove those resources uh, you know, even though you only had 75 students. Meanwhile, the question is, do we keep those resources for another year? So we have schools, for example, that might have been provided resources for uh, for 50 or 100 diverse learners, but only 25 showed up. And they have almost as many uh, adults uh, in the school as children in that program. But meanwhile, down the street, you might have a school that has the same number of adults with triple or quadruple the number of students. We brought in the principals, and what they said is, we need some foundational resources. So we're providing resources to every school so that children have access to the arts, not just in a few schools, but every single school, making sure that we have enough teachers so that uh, schools are not combining classrooms. We call them split classrooms. Also making sure that class sizes are reasonable. Every year, uh, Jacoby, we have to step in and find we find classrooms with 30-plus kids, and we have to add additional teachers during the year. This year, we said no. Not going to happen. The issue is some schools are getting adjustments, but the but the schools that are getting adjustments, Jacoby, are exactly schools that I just said. You know, X number of children, they were funded for X number of children. There's a lot less children today. What about if those diverse learners return to those schools? Are you bringing those resources back immediately or are schools always kind of playing catch up? Because, you know, say halfway through the year, more students return to a school or students come back. Are you going to have to wait until the end of the school year to bring those resources back to a school? Here's what's sad. These schools, they had the resources all year long, and we never saw the children go back, you know, uh, come back. We might have a school that got funded for four pre-K classrooms, 80 children. Only 25 showed up. We didn't take away the teachers. Mm-hmm. They had four teachers and four aides for 25 children. Now, we, what we say is, okay, now maybe they'll, they'll be able to come back to 40 children. So we'll fund them for two classrooms next year so they can build up to two. The, the, sad, uh, the, the sad news is, Jacoby, is that we've been in enrollment declines for the last decade. 
Overall, our district has has declined enrollment by over 10,000 children per year consistently every year, 25,000 in the last two years alone. So we're not seeing anything in our demographic data that tells us that children are going to come back. Mm-hmm. Well, how is the district dealing with the declining enrollment on the front lines? Are there CPS employees who are actually talking to these families and asking, why are you leaving CPS? Where are your kids going? Because again, for so long with enrollment tied to funding, Black and Latino students have been, or schools have been losing students. So I get you say, well, you had the resources for this many students and now you have this many, but they're on a downward trajectory. What are we doing to address declining enrollment other than stripping schools of funding? Because I don't see how that puts a school in a better position to attract students, to attract faculty, to attract parents to come and participate in, you know, volunteer days. If all they read about their school is, well, we took 200,000 more dollars away from you. You know, we're asking the question, what is our standard of academic excellence in, in, in our district? And is that standard in place in every single neighborhood? Or for example, do we have, you know, access to strong programming like international baccalaureate programs in every neighborhood? Do we have strong programs around STEM, around the arts? So that making sure that every neighborhood is set up for success, because what we're seeing is uh, more and more families are moving to the suburbs. More and more, you know, we have less uh, lower birth rate. And so those are just uh, macro demographic issues that we are, we're struggling with. We've been struggling with them for over a decade. The challenge is we have one-time money. We don't have enough money from the state. We're short-funded by billions of dollars by the state every year. So the challenge is, how do we make sure that we use these limited one-time ESSER monies in a way that strengthen the entire district? And for listeners, ESSER funds are the elementary and secondary school emergency relief. You said the goal was to put fundamental resources in every school, regardless if their budget is going up or going down. What are those fundamental resources that CPS has, has never given every neighborhood school before? Yeah, so Jacoby, so, so it's, you know, and I went to school here as a kid. Like I said, we never and given- Benito Juarez, right? Yes, yes, sir, including in Wash Elementary School mm-hmm. and, and Cooper's, you know, junior high. And so for me, you know, what we never had, even when I was a student here, we never had enough teachers so that our class sizes weren't too large. I mean, every year, Jacoby, we have to step in and look at schools who have 30 plus kids in a classroom, which we shouldn't be doing. We know this for a fact today. We have some schools that are rich in the arts and some schools that have nothing. And we say we, that cannot happen anymore. So so in terms of like for the 2022-2023 school year, what are those positions that will be in all schools that weren't in there prior to the budget? We're going to be hiring over 1,600 uh, teachers this year. We're also adding academic coaches to work with teachers that might be inexperienced or they just need a little bit extra help. That's in 180 schools, predominantly, by the way, in our Latinx and Black communities. So when this budget is finalized, Jacoby, what I want to be able to tell our families, you will you will see more spending than ever on our Black and Latinx students. We're also investing in more counselors, more social workers, more nurses. So really, the challenge for us, are there schools that are getting adjusted? Absolutely. Is it driven 100% because of enrollment declines? Absolutely. But with that, Jacoby, you know, we were able to still 60% of our schools, even with, you know, and some of them with enrollment declines, still saw a significant increase in their budget. The schools that they had adjustments, it just the, the, the number of children that declined was so high. I was left with this dilemma of, OK, Jacoby, how do I explain to the school down the street whose enrollment declines maybe weren't as great or maybe they were stable and you have a lot more adults in your building for a small subset of children? compared to the children in that other building, not because the needs are greater, 
but just because your enrollment declined more. And sadly, we lost more than ever, you know, children during the pandemic, about 25,000. You mentioned in a piece, you know, we wish we could have reached out, for example, to the neighborhood associations, to the different groups to share with you these specific details. So why didn't you? The budget process really doesn't end till June. You know, I wish now, you know, even at, even before we announced the first phase of the budget that I would have went out and just spoken more to different community groups. So that's something that I'm taking as a lesson going forward. In the meantime, we're doing it now. We're doing it now. We're going to have a, a detailed presentation even at our May board meeting. We'll have another one in June. Yeah. You say you're doing it now, which, you know, I appreciate. But if the budget, you know, conversation ends in June, well, what families are saying actually have an impact? Because I get what you're saying. Enrollment has been declining for decades. But what that also means is parents and students and teachers in particular neighborhood schools have been experiencing budget declines, have been experiencing resource decline for those decades as well. So, you know, when they come out to tell you all of these struggles, all of these things that they're dealing with, you know, how is that going to impact the conversation in a couple of weeks when, again, we've had had months to talk about this? So first of all, you know, just know this, we didn't develop the budget in a vacuum, Jacoby. So Mm -hmm. what I wish, Jacoby, though, is again, this is a big city. Yeah. And so, I feel that. I feel that. And so for me, you know, getting on your show and others just to even be doing even more, that's what I want to I want to take that lesson to heart for the future. Uh, but here's what I would commit. If there's any school who cannot provide these essential services that we just described, which are foundational, please, you know, we've been we, we will continue this. This budget doesn't end in June. It can it's really an ongoing. It's a dynamic process because right now everything is based on estimates. We get into the fall, we see the actual children. I'm I'm going back for a second. How does that philosophy encourage a school to improve if one, they're being forced to compete with resources with the school down the street? You said it yourself. How do I go to that other school that needs the resources and tell them, well, that's competition between schools, which doesn't feel beneficial to the school, but how does a school in Little Village that's slated to lose $890,000 communicate that to their teachers, communicate that to their families and build a, a sort of morale that, you know, we still got you. We're still going to be able to give your students the best. How does an $890,000 cut not send alarm bells to the parents to pull their students from that school only starting the cycle again? If those, if that adjustment is due because of the fact that, for example, we expected a hundred diverse learners and we only have forty, if we expected, you know, eighty pre-K children, we only got twenty. That uh, in the meantime, we have schools all over that same neighborhood who got then, you know, the children they expected or more, and could, and and by the way, during the year, these resources were were kept at the school. The district's got about $1.9 billion in federal COVID relief. How does that money contribute to next year's budget? And are you spending it all next year? The money that's left, we're trying to be fiduci- you know, good fiduciary, uh, you know, you know, you know, both responsible to our parents and taxpayers by extending the funds over the next two to three years. Because what our principal said is, CEO, we love these additional resources. We, you know, these are, it was based on our feedback, but what we're worried is, can you sustain them? And so what we want to do is stretch out the dollars over the next two plus years 
Because one of the things, Jacoby, that I really need from our community is we need to advocate heavily with the state to say, look, we know these are the right things to do. These are the right investments to make. So my goal is that over the next two plus years, we build a case for it so that I can really get the community to, to back us and support us and put pressure on the state. Mr. Martinez, you've referenced principals a lot. Your conversations with them, what they say their schools need, your partnership in developing the budget. But Troy LaRavier is the president of the Chicago Principals and Administrations Association, and he says these budget cuts for 40% of schools represented callousness and neglect by CPS officials. How do you respond to that? Sure. So first of all, Jacoby, one of the things I take pride on is we did this budget with our principals from the beginning to the end. And one of the things we have said, and we said this repeatedly, again, if there's any school, including schools that are getting these adjustments, who cannot meet uh, you know, these goals. So you know, I, I just respectfully disagree. Every school will have the resources to provide the essential service they need. Now, Jacoby, it doesn't mean that it's enough. And I'll just say this again. It doesn't mean that it's enough. Is it better? Is it more equitable? I believe it will be. It's still not enough. I will say I appreciate you acknowledging that it's not enough because, you know, when people, especially in Chicago, when they say it's the most equitable or we're spending more on black and and Latino students, to me, that doesn't really mean shit because you weren't ever spending enough on them. Black and brown communities have been the least resources and and the most neglected. Like you said, you, you grew up in these neighborhoods. What does it feel like to have to communicate to mostly black and brown schools that based on the way our city funds schools, our our nation funds schools, the the way enrollment trajectories have gone, which are out of the complete control of the students? I'm sorry, but you're going to have to experience more budget cuts like that can't be an easy conversation to have, I imagine. So many of our children just have multiple struggles. Um, you know, the majority of our children, not only are they are they Black Latinx, but they're also high poverty children. And the reality is that we need to do more. The only reason, Jacoby, that we can even do what, we're, what I just shared with you is because we have federal dollars. Imagine if we didn't have federal dollars, because, again, our state is not doing enough. You've said that a few times. Can you explain what do you mean when you say the state needs to do their part? For people who don't understand how the state helps fund the CPS budget, what does it mean for the state to do its part? So, Jacoby, the state itself did its own analysis before I got here, before I became CEO, and said, this is what uh, we need to fund in order for children to have you know, a, an adequate level of funding. Adequate. That was their own formula. And, and, and for every dollar that they're supposed to be spending, they're spending 66 cents. And, so, and for us, because of our size, that's billions of dollars with a B. More than even we have in ESSER money. And by the way, it's supposed to be every year. So, so ESSER money is one-time money, right? These are monies every single year. And so what it keeps happening here is that our taxes keep going up, which is fine. Our local taxpayers are doing their part. The federal government used to be behind. Well, now they made up some of that because of ESSER. Our state never has. ESSER funds are the elementary and secondary school emergency relief. Uh, the Chicago Teachers Union contract says that the district should have a nurse and social worker in every school every day by next school year. Are we going to be able to make that happen? What I can tell you is that we're meeting or exceeding every single one of the contractual requirements we have. And I want to, and, but I'll tell you, but it's still never enough, right? And so, so, and I say that personally, like I want more. So we're investing heavily in nurses, in counselors, in social workers. We need more support for mental health than ever before. So I'm reaching out to our community providers because we can't do it all ourselves. So there will be, you can say with confidence, there will be a nurse and a social worker in every school, elementary and high school around Chicago? 
So Jacoby, the, the requirement was actually on the nursing side. And the mm-hmm. answer is yes, there will be sufficient nurses to provide services across our schools. And do you have a sense of what percentage of schools will have a, a daily social worker or counselor on staff? So, so overall, they'll have access to both counseling and social workers at every school. But Jacoby, I'll send you those specific details. You said a lot that because of enrollment, you may drop faculty. Is that where the majority of the impact of budget cuts will be seen in terms of how many particular faculty members are in a given school? So, Jacoby, mostly what we're going to be seeing is, is, for example, teachers having to maybe move from one school to another. The good news is it's not a large set of schools. Uh, we're collecting that data now. We actually have a process right now for teachers to be able to transfer because in the past, you know, you, you know, we, we have not given teachers enough time. And by the way, we have openings throughout the summer. So again, short of performance issues, there should be no teacher that loses their job. And then we're working with any other person. We're hiring custodians. We're hiring food service staff. We're hiring, you know, so in most of the other areas of our district, we're hiring pretty aggressively. What truly is a more equitable way to fund schools and is CPS closer uh, to that type of a system? Less than our, you know, for this upcoming year, uh, Jacoby, less than half of our funding will be driven by student-based budgeting. And what I want to be able to do is in the fall is to be able to come back to your show and say, here's how we ended up. Let me share with you how our schools are looking for the year. Pedro Martinez is the CEO of CPS. I appreciate you letting me grill you today. And thank you for joining us at CityCast. Thank you for having me, Jacoby. The next Chicago Board of Education meeting is Wednesday, May 25th. And people who want to give public comment at the meeting can sign up on May 23rd. The final budget is slated to be released on June 7th. Now, the Chicago Teachers Union calls the 2023 budget needless, harmful, and cruel cuts. In response to Martinez saying CPS will roll out federal relief funds over the next two years, they said, Our families have been promised support for the last two years, and it hasn't shown up. Our schools need it now. Before I let you go, a little bit of news, y'all. Chicagoans are being encouraged to wear masks indoors yet again. This announcement comes as the city moves back into medium risk for catching COVID-19. Tomorrow night, you can hear the candidates running to replace longtime Congressman Bobby Rush in Illinois' 1st District. The forum will be held at Freedom Temple Church on West 74th Street. And some good news to get you through. You can check out Hebrew Brantley's new Flyboy statue outside the Chicago Children's Museum at Navy Pier. Brantley also helped redesign the on-site art studio for kids. Remember, for more Chicago stories and events, check out our daily newsletter at chicago.citycast.fm. As always, I appreciate you for listening. Talk to you tomorrow. Peace. I'm going to do it one more time from the top. Here we go. Here we go.